Uh, hello and welcome to product or the product show or talk product. Honestly, I have not decided what to call this yet. This is kind of my experiment. So my name is Casey and this show is all about talking about digital product design, tech, life, and how to get into the industry. So today I am talking with Anna Cook. Hi, Anna. Hi. Hey, so once again, welcome to the podcast. Um, you have a huge resume of experience, uh, specifically talking about accessibility. So I'm super excited to talk with you today about accessibility. It's a, it's a subject that I myself am also very passionate about. Mm -hmm. So if you'd like, could you tell me a little bit about a little more about who you are and kind of what you do? Resume, an expensive resume. That's very kind of you to say. Um, my name is Anna Cook, as you mentioned, and uh, I'm a senior product designer, and I specialize uh, in accessibility. And generally, what we'll find with product designers and senior level folks is that we kind of have a T-shaped person <clears throat> in terms of their skill sets. So, you know, for me, that meant specializing in accessibility, and for others, it's things like motion design, for example, or being really amazing researchers and um, so, you know, for me, it's just something I'm really passionate about. And, uh, and so I'm always happy to talk about it as you've probably seen. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, who I am, who I am, I, uh, you know, I work at Recurly and, uh, I am a graduate student at the Atlas Institute of CU Boulder. And so between all of that, I'm pretty busy and, uh, can't complain too much. That's awesome. So I know accessibility is a topic that, uh, companies are now starting to really talk about and to really make a high priority. So how do you, how do you make accessibility something uh, that they, you know, put out a seat at the table? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's one that we're all continually having to find answers to um, because I think every organization is going to have a different set of goals and priorities and, um, and so I tend to find there's a few things that you can do to, you know, talk through the value of accessibility. And um, as a general rule, if you're working in an organization uh, and especially companies, it usually comes down to dollars and cents and uh, understanding and, and breaking down ableism. And so when we look at this, uh, when we look at accessibility from that level, we, you know, we generally will start conversations around uh you know, big and innovative companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft, they all have years of dedication to accessibility. Uh, and that didn't necessarily always come out of uh, great intention. Some of it came out of er, <clears throat> laws and uh, lawsuits. And sometimes it came out of in uh, innovation and intention. It just depends. Uh, but you can point to any of these organizations and see that, you know, some of their best products have come out of accessibility. Like, for example, Siri uh, was originally designed with accessibility in mind, and a lot of us are using it all the time, every day. Um, so <clears throat> I think when I tend to talk to organizations, I emphasize that first. Um, we also look at things like in the United States alone, we know that up 20, 15 to 30% now, <clears throat> according to the most recent data, the population has a disability at any given time. And so if you're looking at your user base, and you're thinking, well, it's no big deal to leave behind, you know, 20 to 30 percent of our users. Uh, well, you know that that's a problem. And so the reality is that 
if you have a company that cares about its customers, if you have a, customer, uh, a company that cares about its users, it needs to care about accessibility. Um, you can always point to accessibility legislation, um, but you know people get scared about lawsuits. You're like, ah, it's, I don't wanna get sued. You know, We don't want our company to get sued. That's part of the reason we point to it. But you know, the reality is that uh, the best products, the ones that make the most money and the ones that help people most are ones with accessibility in mind. Nike is the most recent example of this. They did a shoe that is easy to put on uh, for all types of people. I think I saw that shoe actually. That's the one where it's kind of um, shaped like a like a V. Yeah. And then you're yeah. able to just kind of stick your foot in there and then stomp down and then it just slides, slides yeah. in. I think I saw that video uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, they actually, my understanding of it is um, they, of course, the marketing hasn't really been specific to, you know, talking about how it was designed with inclusivity in mind at the beginning. Uh, but the story I heard did emphasize that in inclusion at the beginning and the amount of people that will use that shoe, um, people who, you know, who <clears throat> maybe uh, wheelchair users, people who may have limited mobility, people who, um, you know, prefer not to have to bend over when they put their shoes on. I'm one of those people. It's going to, it's going to perform pretty well. Um, yeah. So Nike's a great example. I saw that Xbox too. They, um, yeah, they released a line of mod modular controllers that you can actually it almost works like a Lego, like depending on your disability, like your limb disability, you can actually modulate it to where it's more comfortable for them so they can play any game. Uh, that Xbox provides without feeling limited with their disability. I mean, that's that's accessibility on its head too. It's it's not necessarily. Uh, I think we when we look at it, it's just alternative means of access is a big part of it, or um, being able to customize and, and fit something to our unique or you know or specific needs. Uh, I think that one's really exciting to hear about. And, you know, X Xbox even released um, quite recently a list of uh, developer resources to help game developers make more accessible games, which is huge um, because as far as I know, uh, and, you know, I'm not 100% sure because I'm not a game designer, uh, but there's been no, they don't really have a WCAG. They don't have uh, world content accessibility guidelines. Um, uh, web content accessibility guidelines, excuse me, um, the way, you know, web and product designers do. So it's really exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, with accessibility, how did you know that that was a niche that you wanted to pursue? Like, was that early on in, in your career? Or is it something that you just kind of, um, you know, ran into in a, in a specific situation? And then that became something that you decided to champion? I mean, how did you, how did you get into accessibility? Well, I think like most uh, senior designers, the experience I have is based on a lot of little things that have happened. And and so, you know, I have stories from early on in my career where somebody would ask me something like, is this uh, accessible to people with colorblindness? And, uh, right. uh, you know, back then I was like, I, I have no idea. And uh, I'm the kind of person who just doesn't like not having the answer to those questions. And so over time, uh, I found myself uh, gathering answers to those questions, but, you know, uh, choosing to specialize in this was uh, largely because I realized, I, I mean, I, I realized after digging in over and over and over again, how much you can do as a designer 
to make things more accessible. And not only that, but really, truly, it, it, it's stuck with me that really the best products are accessible and not only just accessible, but they're accessible from the start. And so, you know, what made me choose that was was reading books and hearing the voices of people and um, and realizing just how far spread uh, inaccessibility is and how much it, in, per, in retrospect, those inaccessibility things would have been much easier to fix if you had considered accessibility from the get go. And so, um, and besides, you know, we, we, the reality is it makes, it helps me sleep a little bit better at night too, you know, to be able to say, um, this is something I care about and I'm going to do everything in my power to make this happen because I believe it is the best thing to do. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up colorblindness. We're just now starting to tackle that in some of our products. And right off the bat, when we showed it to people higher up the ladder, they immediately went, we are so stoked about this. Like, not only is it something that um, champions, you know, accessibility, but it's also incredibly marketable. Like, not a whole lot of fintech project or products really take accessibility and spearhead it for their product line. Like that's something that's not something that you really see in in, in fintech applications. That's kind of the amazing thing about it too is that you know it, there's no perfect like user experience because people right. are inherently complicated, but. I find that if there ever were a, a best practices in usability list, it would be uh, WCAG. And, um, and so I find that if I'm baking that into my experience, uh, it tends to do better. Uh, obviously, again, it, there's no perfect answer to every question, but it sure sets things apart much further than things would have been if I hadn't been thinking about that in the first place. Totally. And we kind of skimmed the surface of WCAG and I actually didn't know how to pronounce it before. So I'm glad that you said it. Um, neither could my coworkers. <laughs> so I'm glad that um, you, you know how to pronounce it. Um, but we kind of skimmed the surface, like really just briefly summarized it and we didn't really dive too deep on it. So I'm curious, like what other types of elements within WCAG have you found that was something that was worth like emphasizing in some of your accessibility or anything that you learned through through those documents that that helped improve upon the user experience on things that you've built? Well, one uh, example I tend to go to a lot is making things uh, keyboard accessible. Uh, and the reason that uh, I mentioned that one is not just because the it's not just because it's useful for people who are keyboard only users, uh, which is awesome and we should be including those folks. Um, but it's also because I think of things like form fields, which are notoriously annoying. Um, and how every time I'm going to for fill out a form field, uh, I'm doing, I'm tabbing between form fields because that's faster than me using my mouse to navigate each of those items. And so uh, one of the first things I tend to, to check when I'm looking for something uh, or trying to understand if there's accessibility on a product is, you know, I'll look and tab through their, their a page. And uh, most of the time, you know, it depends, but like if I can see focus on every focusable item, that's great. Um, if I can tab to every interactive element, that's really important. If, um, if every page does, I mean, the, another one I tend to look at is skip navigation. 
Personally, I think that one's really important. So skip navigation, just as a background there, is let's say you're going to a web page and you hit tab. Uh, what skip navigation essentially does is it opens a skip to main content button and allows you to skip the navigation. And the reason I mm -hmm. like this, is obviously I am uh, as a sighted user, someone who, um, or someone who's not keyboard only, and my you know, interpretation is gonna be biased, but um, the reason I like it is because it is such a pain to go through every page of, in a website and have to go through every navigation item every time. Uh, it's like if someone were to have you go to a page in every page of the website and read out loud every item in navigation every time you went on to a new page. Uh, and so to me, I'm like, that seems super easy uh, in terms of implementation. And it seems like a really easy win. Uh, but there's a bazillion, I mean, WCAG is just a, like a like a source of wisdom and truth that I, I could dig into and, and reference for multiple applications. It's, I think focus order and keyboard accessibility is huge though. That's cool. I've never heard of that before, a skip navigation. That's interesting. That's something that I definitely want to like look into after this, after this call. They call it a bypass blocks in the uh, in their uh, guide guidelines. So yeah, absolutely look into it. WebAIM has some great article, a great article about that that I uh, like to reference. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, since you've decided to make accessibility sort of your niche, um, who do you think influenced you the most in your field, and and who? Who do you see as like someone at the pedestal as well, who's who also champions accessibility or, or a company or anything along those lines? Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, the person I tend to, the people I tend to find have most influenced me are ones that the more I become experienced, the more I get to talk to. Um, and that, I mean, is just, it's so exciting. Like um, <clears throat> Crystal Preston Watson, she's based out of Salesforce um, and she's doing some amazing work over there. Um, and she, you know, earlier on when I was starting to, to work on this, she really, you know, had a very, some great talks that I saw at De Develop Denver uh, back when we could do things in person. And, uh, and she does some great talks uh, about accessibility in terms of QA uh, and QA engineering. And I think that uh, the way she speaks about it and the way um, she talks about accessibility is just so approachable. Um, and it really helps me feel comfortable and confident. Uh, especially when I get to talk to her. I mean, Eric Bailey is another person I um, have aspired to be like for the past few years. Um, Tatiana Mack, uh, another person who I've also <clears throat> inspired to be like. These are people that uh, have been doing this for longer than I have, who have been writing articles and speaking at events and going in-house for you know big tech companies and doing amazing things. And um, I think what I appreciate most about all of these people is that they understand accessibility isn't just a list of items to do. Accessibility is a people need. Um, it's it's not a special need. It's it's about serving people and their needs where they are. Um, and so I think, I mean, there's a bazillion more people I could think of, but those are just some that I, I think of, especially right now. Um, 
So I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that are doing great work. I like that you said it's a people need. Like, I don't think that's emphasized enough. Like, that's the whole reason why designers like us decide to pursue something like user experience, because at the end of the day, it's about the people and and it's about their ability to easily use our products or not, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I've talked a little bit about this, but like, I what I tend to find to be the most problematic about the way tech companies in general talk about accessibility is that they de-emphasize the people that we serve. Mm-hmm. And, and then it becomes this like, accessibility is an, an edge case conversation. And the reality is that accessibility is not an edge case. Accessibility is a core part of every experience, B2B, B2C, whatever, wherever you are, there are people who have disabilities. And as long as you are creating a product that people are using, then you will have people who are using it who have disabilities. Absolutely. And I see that a lot of the times when, um, you know, uh, project managers send us user stories that have nothing to do with the user. They're completely technically based. And it frustrates me to like, like no end how they'll give us user stories and the entire story is like, this part of the product is lacking a stepper and we can't get to the end and people are missing the, you know, the button that allows them to finish the workflow. And I'm thinking at no point did you mention what this person is trying to accomplish, who it's targeted for and why they are, you know, using this workflow in the first place. So I think it's really great that you said that it, it's, it's meant for the people and that really, it, it does get de-emphasized, especially in tech. And I yeah. feel like putting accessibility on the pedestal really puts them, uh, you know, makes it a focal point in, in development. So I'm glad that you brought that up. There's a really, um, in a slight side note, there's a really good Twitter account. It's called uh, Shitty User Stories. Um, I know that one. That one's great. Yeah, it's just, I, I love that one. Uh, it's like, as a user, I want to get a pop-up when I first get on a website so I can sign up for a newsletter, something like that. Um, there's another one called, uh, I think it's Goat Goat User Stories. Oh, yeah. So it's like the same idea, but it's like, as a goat, I need to use this uh step stool to get to this like amount of hay or something it's like really <laughs> silly but it's it's really funny it's just like the same thing along those lines oh, i gotta love that stuff yeah yeah um so i mean what does a typical day look like in your line of work well i think uh it looks like what it would with most senior product designers um so you know for me it's um i will be doing anything from designing uh, a set of, you know, uh, pieces for a prototype flow um, to writing a script and preparing for user testing to uh, getting together some interview questions and, and workshopping with my teammates to figure out, you know, what we want to understand from our users and things we want to explore and um and kind of generate ideas on. There's, you know, there's a lot of UX and accessibility uh, that comes together. And, you know, part of the work I tend to find myself doing is, you know, for example, making components that, you know, for our design system and um, and making sure those components have accessibility guidelines, um, making sure our stories have uh, accessibility considerations. That's a really fun one um, that I, you know, 
that I'm having discussions with our engineering team around these things. And, um, and I tend to, you know, I tend to find uh, my day to day looks has a, involves a lot of conversations, whether those are with, you know, uh, users or with my team members or um, with engineering, it's, it's a lot of talking and which is why my voice of course is going out. But, um, but of course, you know, there's playing around Figma and looking at WCAG a lot. So I think, um, generally speaking, it's, it's, you know, I'm busy and it's, it's good to be busy. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear. I'm curious too. Like when you're, when you're trying to deliver accessibility guidelines, like, do you deliver that in the form of like design principles or is that something that you would put in like your pattern library? Well, my personal, so there's a few places where you're going to want to include accessibility in general. My personal thought on this is that the best and easiest way to scale accessibility is within your design system itself. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, it's the same place that um, you're scaling design in general. And so uh, you can look at, you know, design systems like um, one I reference a lot here is Carbon, which is IBM's, and they'll have baked in accessibility uh, guidelines for their components. And I think that is uh, a huge part of how you can bake in accessibility just day to day. And then if you're doing feature focus work, just um, including like in a, in a story that things should do things a certain way, having you know a user story that's like, as a keyboard only user, I want to be able to navigate to these form fields so that I can enter the data I need to, to check out or something like that. So including those details in, in, you know, both in your design systems uh, with your engineering team and then on features themselves, like that is a big part of accessibility in uh, especially in a scrum team and an agile framework. Right. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, if you were to tell your younger self some advice, like Anna, who's in school, who's about to pursue design, uh, what would you tell her? Like, uh, what would that advice be? Um, I think the first thing I would have told my younger self is that I didn't need to have all the answers. Um, and the reason I say that is because I feel like I spent a lot of my time as a junior trying to, to like kind of defend myself from inexperience and, and be ready to like, you know, I was like, I'm ready. I can take this job. Like I deserve this job. And, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome where I was trying to protect myself. And, uh, and I think a lot of junior designers deal with this because it's really, it's really intimidating sometimes. And, um, and so I think being comfortable with being wrong is a hard thing to learn. Um, I am wrong every single day, probably at least a few times a day when it comes to my work. And that's the nature of the work we do. And that's, I mean, I'm proven wrong and I should be. No, I, I'm glad that, that you said that. And I actually wrote that down, being comfortable, being wrong. And it's tough for a young designer, like someone who just came out of school, who, you know, just produced a bunch of work, has a huge portfolio, and all of a sudden they get into the working field. And in the real world, you're critiqued constantly. And sometimes the answer that you present isn't exactly the answer that's correct. So it's hard to remove your your ego from the, the, the design work that you produce, right? At the end of the day, you kind of have to like take a step back and remove yourself from the design. And ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, you're designing for the company who hired you. So 
your job is to make that design work for the product that you were hired to basically uh, create designs for. And that, you know, it's, you can't, you can't, it's not your baby once, <laughs> once you design it and you deliver it. So I think that's interesting that you brought that up. Like critique is a critique is a huge challenge for, I, I feel like for a young designer. Well, and I have, I actually probably tweet about this one too much too. I, I'm of the opinion that it's also the job of leadership in design to make an environment where a designer, especially junior designers feel comfortable with not failure, but with, um, with learning. And right. so, you know, brutal critique, unnecessarily brutal critique is something I will never advocate for. I mean, honest critique, great. You know, you want to give someone feedback so they can grow. But, you know, the stories of like, you know, like teachers throwing students' work in the trash and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this is not a 1970s <laughs> bully film. Like we, yeah. we, we're all adults here. Let's act like it, you know? Yeah, it's funny. Like uh, a lot of art students deal with that. Like I, I experimented a little bit with with fine art. Um, like back in 2012, 2013, I was I was kind of like looking outside of the design field and seeing if if fine art was something that I wanted to pursue. And kind of looking at like movie art and, and game art. And so I wanted to kind of dip my toes into fine art and to see if like storyboarding and, and that kind of stuff was a field that I that I was interested in. And that's one thing that I noticed in that particular line of work. It's really toxic. Like they will literally throw your work away in the trash if you got the fundamentals slightly wrong. It's a very brutal line of work. Yeah, I mean, uh, my undergraduate was... Uh a combination of studio art and technology arts and media. Cause um, you know, back in, back in those, that's not that far that long ago, but um, you know, back in those days, I didn't really know that design was a, a thing. And so I had this sort of combo pseudo thing uh, that ended up being design after I figured out what it was. But um, my fine art classes were, um, were less fun than my design classes. I'll say it that much. I also personally, I just appreciate design more because it's like, feels useful. Um, right. Whereas art, I'm like, is who's, who am I making this for? You know, no offense to art. I love art. It's just, I'm not the best artist. So. No, it's very true. It's a, like with art, it's a very relative answer to a problem that doesn't necessarily exist. Right. It's kind of um, within the eye of the beholder, whether it has worth or not. So it's, it does become kind of ambiguous, like, and with design for me personally, like as soon as I switched to design, I started making money, like, like right away, like being, being a young guy, uh, just getting out of high school, not having a whole lot of experience starting to do web design. I immediately started getting paid for projects and like for someone who's young and who doesn't have any money, like getting paid to do that kind of work and to be creative and to answer a problem for me was just something that I decided to pursue and, and became, you know, kind of the product designer that I am today. So. That sounds like a very familiar story. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I, there's some people who will say like, oh, you need to be really passionate to do this. I'm like, well, that's true. Um, but I also like getting paid. It, it's nice, right. you know, um, I, I certainly would never be upset with someone who's like, I would like to make money, you know, so, um, survival is important. So, 
but yeah, I mean, I, you know, like I, I think their art is a wonderful thing and I will never say that otherwise, but uh, I find a lot more fun in design because it's a little bit more, I feel like I'm giving something more day to day. Totally. And on the subject of accessibility, like you kind of have to have passion to pursue that, right? Because I can't think of anything that's more empathetic for a user than making something usable to someone who isn't used to having products catered to their disability or to make it useful enough that they could easily use at, you know, for their day. So like, I don't see how you can't have some sort of passion um, and pursue accessibility, right? At the same time, like you have to have some sort of, uh, you have to be empathic, right? To, to pursue something like that. A good book for this one, um, just before I forget, it's called Mismatch by uh, Kat Holmes. And she talks about how, uh, how exclusionary design feels. And uh, I recommend this one a lot, especially recently, because I think uh, Kat Holmes was one of the, I believe, one of the original people to put together Microsoft's inclusive design toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, their work on the, on, in the book is just, it really changes your perspective. It makes you see that uh, even though some parts of accessibility don't directly benefit me, exclusionary design has affected us, all of us. Right, now, yeah. And I'm curious, like, if that's something we should start writing in our, in our design principles, like what's exclusionary? Kind of like a how might we fail, right? Instead of how might we fail, how are we excluding to, to certain users? I mean, that's a great question. Um, I find old design culture does not challenge itself enough. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, obviously specific to each designer and each team. Um, I find my team is, you know, right now is really amazing about it. And, uh, but, you know, challenging our internal biases is a hard thing to do. Uh, and challenging your, your biases as a team and as a group, like that's, you know, it's a challenge. And we, we tend to look at exclusionary design as a failure, which, you know, if it's intentional, it absolutely is. But most of the time people don't design exclusionary pieces or experiences by, by, uh, on purpose, mm -hmm. I should say. And it's, it's just people being people. And so I tend to look at accessibility as an opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity to do amazing work instead of uh, uh, as a way that we have failed. Right. Yeah. And on the subject of challenging bias, like that's something that we personally have to battle like every day since we're, we're designers. Like I feel like we almost have the same perspectives and we have the same kind of community and we almost have like a, like a, um, there's a term for it, uh, where we all think the same thing because we're consuming the same media. So I'm curious, like when it comes to accessibility, how do you, how do you step out of that? Like, how do you, step out of that perspective when dealing with critique and dealing with looking at what's accessible or not. And like, what would be like, what's the best way to challenge bias? Well, um, the first thing I tend to recommend is listening to the voices of people who have different experiences than yourself. Mm -hmm. Big tech in general is uh, dominated by 
a very specific set of people, usually white, usually abled, usually male, um, and usually, you know, uh, heterosexual, obviously it depends on the person. And, and I certainly am not here to uh, criticize individuals, but, you know, as a community, if, if we are built with this community, we are inherently creating systems that benefit us. And so the easy, the first thing I tend to look at in these situations, and obviously it's easier said than done, is to look at your team's diversity and look at, um, you know, look at your organization and your culture and say like, hey, like these are things that we were, we can do better. And, you know, I think that's a big part of starting to make inclusive work is having a more diverse team. Uh, it also comes down to uh, listening, you know, not just in your team, but like there's a, a lot of great books. One I also recommend in this case is called Disability Visibility. And uh, the focus of that book, it, it, it is really about people who have a range of disabilities experiencing life and how there are many barriers that have been designed uh, to create disability. Um, and so when you read things like that, when you hear the people, hear people's perspectives and see all of the ways they have been disabled, it changes everything about how you look at your systems and the way you design. Um, that, those are the things I tend to encourage people to do a lot. Again, changing systems is gonna take time. It's not easy. Um, it's a constant battle. It's frustrating. It's um, you have to look at your own shortcomings all the time. Totally. And I like how you said, how are we creating disability? Like, how are we, how are we creating blockades for, for our, you know, percentage of users? And I think that really should be part of the critique process. Well, the social model of disability, uh, is one that I always emphasize here. And essentially what it, what it outlines is that disability is not created by one's uh, conditions. It's created by societal barriers, right. uh, designed barriers. And so it's a good point. It's, it's really, you know, learning about that changed a lot about my perspective. So, I mean, say I'm a young designer, I'm getting in the field. Um, you know, I really want to champion accessibility. Do you have any advice for those designers? The first thing I recommend uh, in this situation is to start making accessible work. Don't ask for permission. Um, you can take a grassroots approach uh, to this and and succeed. Uh, you do not, I always encourage you to, you know, not just you, not you, but like everyone, I encourage people to, to, to talk about it, continually work towards accessibility because you will not find you'll walk into a company, any company, and be like, yeah, we're, today we're going to be accessible unless you're like on C-suite because, you know, that's that's not how things work. Right, the reality yeah. is you can walk in tomorrow and design a button and have that button be accessible. And, and you can show, present it to your team. I mean, obviously it's just a button, but you can present it to your team and be like, hey, this button's accessible. Um, or hey, this existing button has some accessibility issues, we can fix them uh, and that'll you know, help our users. Um, just, talk, just doing it and talking about it and asking about it is going to get you so, so far. And every time you do that, you'll learn more. And every time you do that, your team will learn more. Uh, and then you will find over time that wherever you go and whoever you work with will find that to be beneficial. 
I like that you said, don't ask for permission. I think that's huge. And I think a lot of designers, they, they feel almost kind of afraid to, to push for accessibility and to push for empathy for the design. So I think that's a great point. Like don't ask for permission, actually take the steps to make it possible. Yeah, I mean, people, uh, and I have, I do that. I've done this too. We tend to look at accessibility as like on or off and totally. Yeah. But it's like, it's got so many, it's like not 50 shades of gray, but like something, you know, like there's a lot of shades in between on or off. Um, but it's, it's much more complicated, you know, it's, you could have an accessible button, but there's like a bazillion other things you got to fix. Uh, it's, it's not perfect, you know? So, um, just starting and trying and doing is still doing better than 98% of experiences. And I'm not even exaggerating. 98% of websites are inaccessible now. I love that. And I love like when you try to, to champion something like accessibility, putting percentages behind it doesn't just speak to other designers, but it speaks to project managers. It speaks to people who, you know, handle finance. It speaks to a lot of different perspectives within the business. So I feel like that's a really good point. Thank you. Totally. So Anna, um, how could someone get hold of you? Or, or if someone wants to learn more about accessibility, how might they find that information? Well, um, if someone wants to get a hold of me, they are welcome to uh, I'm on Twitter and I apologize if you follow me. I tweet a lot. Um, my name on Twitter is at Anna, A-N-N-A-E, as in um, Elizabeth, Cook, C-O-O-K, and that's my Twitter handle. Um, my website is AnnaEcook.com. And I think you can find most of my social media on my website, Um but I think those are the best places to reach out to me. Uh, people looking to talk and have some mentorship opportunities. I'm on ADP list. Um, I try to make myself as available as I can be without being uh, exhausted. That's awesome. And this is perfect timing, timing too, because my cat has decided to wake up. I could hear them. Yeah, yeah. She she takes naps in the closet and we can't close, like we literally can't close any doors in our apartment because she has this sixth sense where she knows if a door is closed, it doesn't even matter if she needs to access whatever's behind that door. She'll get upset and she'll start meowing. And it gets, it gets really bothersome when I'm trying to do like usability interviews and, and user sessions. Cause she'll I just, my own. yeah, she'll start to cry. It's, it's pretty hilarious. Awesome. So Anna, thanks again for, for talking with me today. And uh, any listeners that are you know interested in being on the show, you can contact me at, at talk product uh we cast once a month i think i don't know we just started and by we i mean me <laughs> so you know I, we might do two a month we might do one a month i'm not sure so anna thank you again for being the very first guest on this podcast and um i appreciate you joining the call and talking with me today yeah thank you for having me awesome Thanks.